Welcome everybody to this edition of the Researcher and Focus podcast from the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the University of Liverpool. My name is Nick Jones and I'm part of the Research and Impact team at the faculty and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr Vera Svedvacha-Petkova who's a reader in global journalism and media in the Department of Communications and Media here at the faculty. Today Vera is going to be taking us through some of her work and research on global journalism its current state, the safety of journalism around the world, and uh, how young people can become more involved and influencing the world of politics. So Vera, thank you very much for joining us. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So first of all, just to get a general idea of uh, what was it that got you interested in studying global journalism? Well, I used to work as a journalist myself um, in, in Bulgaria, and I also was the European editor. So I, I, I did a lot of kind of traveling, mainly to Europe. Um, so when I started uh, my academic work, um, I felt that uh, our field is very much dominated by a very kind of uh, Western perspective on, on journalism, um, even when I was an MA student, after having worked uh, as a journalist, I was um, taken aback by um, some of the theories which did not at all account for the conditions in which journalists work, the challenges that they face, um, and were very kind of normative. Um, so I felt it is it was important for me to try in, in my work to be as all-inclusive as possible and to really genuinely uh, take into account the different contexts and also to try and bring on board colleagues from around the world um, and the perspective of, of journalists themselves uh, from the very um, start of any kind of research study because we can only learn from that rather than try to impose existing theoretical frameworks or on contexts that are very, very different. Um, we can actually enhance this by being more open-minded uh, to the situations on the ground and also the kind of the, not just culturally, socially, politically, but also theoretically the potential uh, for us to be in a better position to explain how journalists work, what role they play. And I, as I keep saying to my students, we have to always bear in mind that only 13% of people in the world live in countries uh, where there is freedom of expression. Um, so we cannot uh, really understand what role they play in their societies or how these societies operate uh, without taking all these circumstances into account. And this is what I've, I've, I've tried to do in all, in all my work, both uh, teaching and research. So you uh, mentioned, you kind of inferred then, you know, that to de-Westernize journalism studies. Could you tell us a bit more about what that means in practice? For me, uh, it means uh, on one level uh, to ensure that we do not um, see journalism as US-UK journalism, but we will look at indeed the worlds of journalism. 
and that means empirically, obviously, uh, looking at uh, different practices and perceptions of journalism around the world, theoretically being open to more kind of grounded theory approaches which account for these uh, differences and build theory from the ground up. Um, and as I say, in terms of uh, scholarship and, and teaching, ensuring that our uh, students and our younger colleagues are very well aware of this. And when they work, uh, be it on an essay or on a PhD thesis, um, they are able to provide this very well-rounded perspective, which is for the benefit of the whole academic community and beyond. So to see things not just through the lens of our our Western experience of how what journalism is and how news is made. Yes, exactly. And because we can, we would read very limited um, and very boring, if you want, findings. If we just take a framework that has been used for many years in, in only certain parts of the world uh, and, and try to impose it on a context. Say if I take the example of the journalist in Russia that I worked with. Um, so I, I did ethnographic work at um, Novaya Gazeta, which is the newspaper with the highest number of uh, killed journalists in Russia. Um, and the editor, Dmitry Muratov, a couple of years ago received the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for the, the work that they do. So if you if you just go in there, talk to the journalists and uh, look at them from the perspective of are they detached watchdogs? Well, the answer will be no, they're not. They don't want to be detached watchdogs. Um, they believe that they would serve their country by being what we have conceptualized as critical change agents, which is basically journalists who want to see a different Russia to the one their political uh, leader wants to have. So for that, they have worked all their lives for the democratization of, of Russia. And that means, as many of them say, that for them this has become not a living a way of life. They now cannot even do that anymore because they, they run the risk of, uh, of being sent to prison straight away for just using the word war in relation to the war in Ukraine. So that's why in a project like that, for me, it was more important to... Um, listen uh, to, to to see what is going on and how we can conceptualize it rather than going there with the kind of normative view of journalism, which might work perfectly well or not in a country like the UK, uh, and then reach the rather predictable conclusion that this is not the case in Russia. What does this add to our understanding of the role of these journalists? Not much. So this is where it becomes important to to drive this effort to de-westernize, de-center um, the field. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you touched on it there in terms of uh, journalism can be a, a deadly pursuit for lots of these people around the world and uh, very dangerous depending on where they live or what they're re reporting on. And um, 
currently at the moment, you know, with like you mentioned Ukraine and then what's happening in Israel and Gaza, there's a, a an escalation of conflict and uh, perhaps a slightly raised awareness for people who watch the news that it is journalists themselves quite often in the front line as much as anybody else. So could you tell us more about the work you're doing in this around the safety of journalists? Yes. So my whole work in that area started with my work in, in Russia um, because what one of the things that was really striking there is that these journalists at this newspaper in particular, uh, every day they would meet under the portraits of of their murdered colleagues because they felt that despite the danger that they were experiencing, the job that they were doing was important and worthwhile. But what struck me during that time is that every one of them had been subjected to various threats or physical attacks, beatings, um, letters, uh, online messages, or, or what have you. So um, I I started when I started presenting this work. I started presenting it at UNESCO's World Press Freedom Day um, events. Uh, and uh, when I joined a few years later the World of Journalism Study, what we realized is that the World of Journalism Study is a cross-national collaborative project involving currently over 300 academics in 120 countries. And it has been running uh, since um, 2009. Uh, this is the third wave now, but uh, and up until this wave, we did not have any safety questions because when we say safety, many colleagues in this part of the world would say, well, this is not relevant to us. Journalists don't get killed here. They don't get beaten up. Um, so why would we study this? Um, our argument, and I led this effort as part of the World of Journalism Study, a working group that started working on the design of questions to be included in these representative surveys with journalists. And we did that in collaboration with UNESCO because our argument is that safety is not just about killings as important as these are. It is, especially in this day and age, um, about uh, online threats, um, it is about psychological safety, mental health issues are very significant. Um, and it is also about financial safety. So we uh, argue that we need to be able to, in order to kind of map what we've called the hostile environment that journalists everywhere work in, uh, we have to be in a position to to study their experiences of these kinds of threats, the support that they receive or do not receive, and their coping mechanisms. So this is what I led on, and we are now uh, at the stage where we will complete the data collection by the end of this year and would we'll be able to present um data across all countries taking part in, in the study. And this is how I, as I say, I started working with UNESCO on that. Um, and um, we also realized that there is a lot going on uh, in journalism research. In, there are also lots of NGOs working in uh, that respect. But um, it's very hard to find information in one place. It's very hard 
academics don't necessarily talk to people outside of academia, civil society organizations very often act uh, upon anecdotal evidence that rather than kind of thorough research evidence. So we decided that it would be worthwhile to launch um, a one-stop platform on, on journalist safety, which aims to bridge the gap between uh, all these different people and organizations that are all ultimately working to improve the safety of journalists worldwide. Um, so uh, we we did that. I lead that new platform, which is called safetyofjournalists.org. Uh, in, um, it is a joint project between us at Liverpool and the World of Journalism Study and in collaboration with UNESCO and it, it has been very well received. We have over, I think, 10, 15 civil society organizations that have shared their resources with on the website, over 100 academics. So we have over 200 resources. And when I say resources, what I mean is anything from toolkits, safety toolkits for journalists to databases of killings and attacks to academic studies on specific safety-related issues, which um, many of them are in a language, uh, translated in a language that makes sense to non-academics. Yes, and, and part of that is, as you briefly mentioned it there, you worked with UNESCO to create an index on journalist safety. So you mentioned some things there in terms of, you know, either... Uh, threats to life or um, financial issues or um, uh, being abused online are those things that go towards the makeup of the index that is what is, is that how you measure that in, that index yes so this uh, this work is in progress at the minute because the the whole idea behind the index uh came out of of the the, the work we do as part of the words of journalism study through the representative surveys with journalists in these 120 countries. So as part of that work, we um, developed a new conceptualization of safety, which is more holistic and which includes all of these elements. So we have four dimensions that we are measuring, um, which are the digital safety, physical safety, psychological safety, and financial safety. And uh, once we have the data at the end of this year, um, we, we are aiming to uh, compile this index across those four dimensions uh, and to be able to compare, so rank countries uh, on the basis of their role kind of safety uh, environment and on the basis of these uh, dimensions, because we also have quite a few questions on uh, precarity um, in journalism, um, which will go towards the financial safety uh, aspect. We have questions on stress, uh, on uh, concern for physical and psychological well-being, things like that. Um, so this is what um, we're working on at the moment, but obviously we cannot complete that until we have the data later okay. this year or beginning of next year exciting uh, earlier you dropped the uh quite frankly boggling fact that only 30 percent 13 percent of people uh around the world live in countries of freedom of expression which is 
incredibly low when you come to think about it. Now, here in the UK, we like to think that we have a, a very free press, pr press, and I understand that we are much lucky, luckier than many others. But as someone who studies these things, where do you think the UK actually ranks? Are we as good as we think or perhaps not? Uh, well, depends who you compare yourself with. But uh, if you look at the Press Freedom Index that uh, one of the big global NGOs compiles with input from some of my colleagues from the World of Journalism Study, which is the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index, uh, the UK, I think, is currently 28th or some somewhere like that. So it's 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 never been in the top ten as far as I can recall. Um, it's usually between twenty fifth and thirtieth place. Uh, in the top, uh, you have usually the Scandinavian countries, the Benelux countries, uh, and the environment there for journalism is much better. Um, so there is much more transparency uh, of. of and availability of public information, um, the ethical codes work. <laughs> so the whole self-regulation system uh, works. Uh, unlike, I mean, in the UK, uh, there have been so many issues, as we know, uh, which kind of culminated in the phone hacking scandal. Uh, but also, uh, when you read the Reporters Without Borders, um, annual report about the UK, they talk about uh, the kind of the increase in uh, uh, legislation, restrictive legislation, which has been a trend in other countries as well on the grounds of national security. Uh, they talk about um, the high volume of complaints against the BBC and the kind of the um, uh, questioning the impartiality of the BBC, which I think now, especially with the, the current conflict in, in Gaza, that would probably not, uh, again, would, would play a role in, in that respect. So, uh, as I say, when you look at a comparison with countries from uh, Eastern Europe or um, Africa, Asia, some countries, not all, of course, uh, of course, the UK fare is much better. Um, but uh, when you compare with European countries in particular, it does not fare that well. Interesting. Yes, I had a feeling that Scandinavia were going to come out quite near the top of that list. Um, <laughs> and, and lo and behold, they did. Yes. So uh, moving on slightly, um, could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming monograph, uh, which is Young People, Media and Politics in the Digital Age? And I think that looks a little bit at how uh, the role that media plays in young people's political socialization. Yes, this is this is based on a, a longitudinal study that I did over well a thirteen year period. So, what I did this was very much inspired initially by my uh, eldest daughter. I have four children myself, so that my uh, daughter, who is now twenty three, I was six at the time, and she just said to me, "We have just um, arrived in the UK." Uh, and I was studying, I was doing an MA in the European Union of all <laughs> topics, media, politics and society. And she said to me one day, oh, mom, and that was 2006, 2007. She said, 
mom, is the European, is uh, the UK in the European Union? And I said, yes, they are. And she said, but how come they have a queen? And I thought, oh, this is, this is not something you would think about. You wouldn't think that the fact that the country is a monarchy would be in conflict with the, the EU membership. And I thought it's, it's really fascinating how, how children can think differently and, uh, and make sense of the world in a different way. So this is what inspired uh, my uh, interest in, in children uh, and, and young people as citizens and the role that the media has in these perceptions because when I questioned her on how she, she how she sees the European Union she was using um, I think it's not very popular in, in the UK but in Bulgaria it was it's a US um, kind of drama about uh, lawyers and she was using an image from that um, kind of um room where they meet uh, as an illustration of what you felt the European Union was about. So this is how I started my work with with, with young people, um, with children. They were nine, ten years old at the time. Uh, and I, thought, I then repeated the study two subsequent times with the same group of young people. So I started working with them when they were nine, ten years old. And then after Brexit happened, I went back to them uh, and and did uh, the same study, basically. Uh, and then when they became uh, officially adults a few years later, uh, well, last year, actually, um, I did the, the third wave because I wanted to see across time how their political perceptions, how their perceptions of their nation, of other nations, uh, how their collective identities, national European change with time and how the media influence these uh, perceptions, identities, knowledge uh, in relation to also all the other um, factors and socialization agents in, in their lives, school, peers, um, etc. So this is this is the study is trying to provide a kind of, again, a more holistic look into moving away from this very linear um, explanation of how children and young people engage with the media to a more holistic, yet obviously complicated um, look at, at the process. Do you think the um, ever-increasing use of algorithm-driven platforms like TikTok and um, Twitter and uh, Instagram is in uh, is shaping young people's political awareness or allegiances, maybe? Everything plays a part in the process. Uh, and it, it, it also depends uh, what age they are. Because when, uh, when they're young... Like when I started with them at the age of nine, even though there, there has been a lot of um, kind of internet use already, it was highly unlikely that a young person would encounter much political content. Uh, even, I mean, you know how the algorithms work. They wouldn't necessarily come across anything like that. So 
television was still the main way in which they would get political information. And this is very much mediated by their parents. Depends what the parents put on, whether they watch themselves uh, the news or any kind of current affairs programs, what they put on the radio as well when they drive them to school. Um, but with age, of course, uh, this this changes, and and uh, you you can see the role of uh, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, etc. And, and and that's why I'm saying it, it is really um, you cannot oversimplify how this process happens, and let alone how it transforms into political engagement or participation from coming across certain content online, uh, in most cases inadvertently, to uh, deciding that you're interested in this topic and you would want to find out more about it, to actually becoming active politically. Uh, so it, it's, it, it is quite a, a process and I think uh, it requires more work and I, my one of my next ambitions is to launch an international project on this topic uh, about this link between media use and then political participation among young people with colleagues from from different countries. I, I started a new network a few months ago with colleagues from 14 countries and we would be looking at how to best capture all that <laughs> as well as the power of algorithms in the process. A huge undertaking, I'm sure, definitely. <laughs> now, uh, I've been looking after online content for a long time and never read the comments has been law for as long as I can remember, but it appears for your next book coming out that you've done just that and gone and read the comments. Not just any comments, but comments about Trump himself. So could you tell us a bit more about that and what you found? Yeah, no, that was really fascinating for me because we, uh, I wanted to look again at countries where you wouldn't, find many, if any, studies on online comments, let's learn about Trump. So um, I had uh, a few research assistants working with me and um, reading through comments about online, about, first of all, Trump's uh, election victory. Uh, and then, uh, so some of the comments were from China. So they would be looking also at the trade comments about the trade war between China and the U.S., some were from Mexico there. The big issue was the, the building of the Mexican uh, wall, which he made a big deal in his election campaign about. And then Russia, of course, where they started off with very high expectations about the reinvigoration of the relationship, if you can call it that. And then there were lots of issues around the U.S. meddling in, um, uh, sorry, the Russian meddling in the U.S. elections. So uh, it was interesting to see the different reactions in the different countries um, and, and how people talk to each other online. So in China, as you would expect, most of these were on message, with depending on what the official line was. And the official line with regards to Trump wasn't that clear up to a point. Um, but it was also, for me, one of the most fascinating things is how people did, did not talk to each other. So what you would see when you study online comments in this part of the world is a lot of kind of uncivil comments, people swearing at each other, attacking each other in China they were not even acknowledging that somebody else has said something 
they were just making their own points in relation to the article or to the issue without addressing the other commenters at all, uh, which to me was quite interesting and also puzzling. Um, in Mexico, uh, as you would expect, there was a lot of arguing. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of comparisons drawn and a lot of abuse at their own politicians and the way they have behaved um, kind of subserviently in the views of commenters towards um, Trump. And Trump uh, received a fair deal of support even in Mexico, which surprised me. There were lots of people who were saying, well, he knows what he's doing. He is a strong politician. Why aren't our politicians like him? Things like that. Um, so it was very interesting overall. Well, thank you for doing something that I'm not sure I would have been able to do. Uh, but it's very interesting, yes, the differences in, in, in how these people talk to each other, if not only just about the subject, because um, I wonder if it's about... Uh, perhaps um, a fear of being observed, maybe or monitored. Uh, in China, I would, I suspect. Yes. Yeah, uh, that that would play a big role. And you, you, we saw Russia was kind of in the middle of of that, with a degree of confrontation, a degree of potential deliberation, but also a lot of staying on on message as well. Um, so yeah, we can we can only establish as much by just looking at at the comments. Um, but it was interesting because you could see some trends of trying to when there was the policy and the the official position was not clear. Uh, there was a lot more scope for commentators to kind of express their own opinion and and test it. Um, I think in a way, uh, I don't know whether the Chinese state makes any use of that, but in a way, it, it, I saw it as kind of nascent public opinion, a, a way of gorging public opinion uh, to to an extent before kind of finalizing policy. So there was, uh, again, this is in the framework of we cannot, if we just dismiss them as living in an authoritarian state, what's the point of looking at them? We know what we will expect. Uh, why study them? If we look through the this, this lens, we are missing a trick there because there is still a lot going on and it's interesting to study and, and try and conceptualize it. Absolutely, yes. If we don't look, we'll never know. Yes. Yeah. So ac across your research career, what do you think has been the most interesting thing that you've come across, the thing that's really stopped you in your tracks and made you do a double take? Yeah, I. everything that I do feel, feels interesting to me, but one thing that completely struck me is after we launched uh, the Safety of Journalists platform, maybe within a week or so, I received an email from a journalist, which was basically saying, save me. So this is a journalist who has worked in Afghanistan, uh, has written a lot about the Taliban, and of course he could not staying in Afghanistan because it was too dangerous for him. So he flew uh, to Iran um, 
and is now seeking seeking help to um, basically uh, find safe refuge for himself and his family. Um, and I managed through my kind of contacts with the NGOs to within hours to find a way to help him basically. So uh, that was quite revealing. It wasn't what the platform was for. This wasn't the, I've never kind of even, well, even when we were writing the press release about it and, 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 and Kat, our colleague asked me, oh, what do you think would be the impact on, for example, journalists in exile? I felt very skeptical because I didn't think it will have such an impact because this was, it was aimed as serving a different aim really. So it was quite striking to me. Um, and then when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, why wouldn't he? Because it's it's, it's actually very difficult in even in, in that world, um, resources go <laughs> into uh, pressing issues and conflict. So uh, I can imagine now there would be a resource invested and there has been for a while in, in terms of supporting journalists from Ukraine or Russia. Uh, or now there would probably be a case of supporting journalists from uh, Gaza, Israel, etc., but uh, when a conflict like that or when it's due to uh, like the one in Afghanistan is not in the public domain for a while um, or the political regime is not in the public domain, there isn't, it's not that easy for people to find support. Um, so that, that was quite um, revealing to me. Incredible, yes. And I mean, you said it yourself as a piece of, you know, real world impact. It doesn't get much more life changing than that to be able to, you know, help an individual perhaps literally get away from a, a life threatening situation, which leads yeah. me nicely on to my final question. So thank you very much for that, Vera. Um, what do you think you'd like to be the single most significant change to, you'd like to see as a result of your research and the impact it might have? Yeah, the improving the safety of journalists would be a very welcome change. Um, and I think also in terms of, so I would probably pick two, actually. Uh, you can uh, have two, that's fine. <laughs> as a second one, I would say, if um, further down the line, newsrooms realize the need to... Um, embed the perspective of young people in everything that they do from the onset, that would also be a very welcome change because what we have seen over the years is how much uh, they struggle to find sustainable business models. They struggle to find um, ways to target the young people basically especially to make political content relevant for them and this is so important because we want young people to be involved engaged in politics um but it it, it has been one of these things where the most simple solution has never really occurred to, to people so i think with 
more kind of my future ambition is looking into this um, cross-national project again with both uh, academic and industry partners. Um, I think it would be really good to, to see that change. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Vera. That's been um, really, really fascinating and and research that couldn't perhaps be more timely and pertinent to, to the things that are happening at the moment. So thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me. It has been my, a pleasure to, for my, me too. Absolutely. My pleasure. So uh, and thank you everybody to listening to us on uh, our podcast today. And uh, I look forward to uh, having you join us again soon for our next installment of our Researcher and Focus podcast. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>